Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men or by a man, but by Christ Jesus and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who has called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which really is no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win approval from human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. It's lovely to see a lot of uh, young folk here. Um, If we hadn't been here tonight, my wife and I would have been in Guildford, uh, the old church we were at. And tonight in Guildford, there is the baptism of three young men, I suppose, about 18, 19 years old, who were just like you. And uh, sometimes we uh, didn't know whether they'd ever come to Christ. And uh, they were the naughtiest boys in the Sunday school, some of them. But tonight they're being baptised because the Lord put his hand on them. And this happens, parents, congregation, as people pray. These dear children need your prayers, especially in these days. So it's lovely to see them here. um, And I pray that God would really uh, bless this church and bring indeed all the young people to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this congregation and thank you indeed for the youngsters here, Lord. We thank you that you give life and much joy. Lord, we thank you most of all that you give eternal life and we covet that the youngsters would come to know you for for themselves and be blessed, O Lord, we pray. Lord, please be with us now. Lord, you know our weakness, our foolishness without you. And we pray, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit in your great grace would come down upon us as we look at your word now. For Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you look at chapter 1 of Galatians and verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The word grace, charis, 
is the normal, non-specialized word for a benefit, um, a favor, a gift. And you can see uh, that Paul is always starting his epistles with this same uh, way of speaking grace and peace to you. The Jews, of course, the Old Testament is shalom, peace, but now grace and peace. This is peculiar. This is something new in the New Testament. And in verse 3, there's that usual greeting uh, of, of grace to the readers. Um, but when then verse 4 kind of underlines that, you see. Uh, verse 4 specifically mentions Christ giving himself. Grace is a gift, and Christ gives himself, verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So there's that idea of gift again. And this is followed by Paul's uh, exasperation. His exasperated astonishment in verse 6 that we read. Having been called by the grace of Christ, they're turning away to something which is no good news at all. And Paul is utterly exasperated with the Galatians. And this exasperation of Paul actually runs through the whole epistle. So if you look, for example, at chapter 3, verse 1, and you'll be using Galatians quite a lot tonight. Chapter 3, verse 1, you foolish Galatians. You've, again, you see his exasperations. Who has bewitched you? He's speaking metaphorically, of course. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. What are you doing? That's the kind of thrust of it. Or again, chapter 4 and um, verse 9, we'll start there. Now you have that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons, that's the Jewish calendar, and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Again, his exasperation. And then chapter 5. It is for freedom, verse 1, that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. You can hear his kind of tone, can't you, there? I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. So Paul himself had become a Christian by the grace of God, he rejoiced in the Son of God who, he says, loved me and gave himself, same thing, for me. And says quite clearly, I do not set aside the grace of God, chapter 2, verse 21. So there's this exasperation, this, what on earth are you doing in this letter? And the real Energy, if you like, the, 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 the ferocity behind what Paul has to say is generated by Paul's understanding of the perfection of God's grace. How perfect God's grace 
is. And they are turning from it. And that is it. That is what fires Paul's outrage and deep concern. Verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by his grace. That's the energy of this letter. And I want to use really 1 verse 6 almost to swing the whole letter <laughs> around that verse in order to give you uh, encouragement and understanding. The grace of God is perfect. It's like <laughs> what the Galatians are doing. It's like being given a Rembrandt painting and then you deciding to improve it with your daubs or your felt-tip pens. What on earth do you think you're doing? He's saying to the Galatians. So we're going to reflect on verse 6 with the perfection of God's grace in mind. And I hope that will help us to see the immensity, once again, the immensity of what we have in Christ and to encourage us to cling always and only to Christ and to, to, to the glory of God. What's the background here in this epistle? Galatia is either southern or central modern-day Turkey, and non-Jewish pagan people had come to trust in Christ and, and following a, a visit from the Apostle Paul. But now they're being influenced by new Jewish, quotes, missionaries to whom Paul is bitterly opposed. They consider that Paul has kind of left the Galatians only half converted since he had not inducted them into the covenant with, uh, of Abraham through circumcision. That's, uh, the mark of all Abraham's uh, people, Old Testament people. Uh, the promise of salvation and of, and of the Messiah was made to Abraham. You remember that through uh, Genesis 12, through you and your seed, all nations uh, will be blessed. So these false teachers say, these people, if, if, that's, if that's the promise of the Messiah and it's given to Abraham, these people must have the same sign that Abraham had. These people must have the sign of being Abraham's people. The circumcision. But everyone knew uh, that Circumcision also meant being obligated to keep the Old Testament law of Moses, the Torah. So this teaching denotes the keeping of the Old Testament law was a necessary, underline that, necessary supplement to faith in Christ. Paul said the right thing about faith in Christ, but this is necessary as well. On its own, faith in Christ is not enough. And Paul is furious with this. Paul sees that as absolutely monstrous because it denigrates the perfection of God's gift of grace in Christ. It's one thing for Jewish Christians to choose to keep the law as an option if they are more comfortable with that. Paul doesn't worry about that. Or to try to keep the law. 
But to make that a necessary, as necessary for salvation and to impose it on non-Jews who had put their faith in Christ is criminal and damnable, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1. That's how Paul sees it. So Paul is battling for the gospel here. He's contending for faith in Christ, faith alone, in Christ alone. It's almost Reformation stuff, this. So let's spend some time thinking about the perfection of the grace of God in Christ. There are various currents in the modern religious world, as there always have been, to drag people away from this pure gospel and to make Christianity, as we shall see, into a religion rather than living faith in Christ. So what makes God's grace so consummate, complete, and without comparison. So I want to just bring before you five headings, five categories to think through. What would make, if you just think about it, Christmas is coming, kids. <laughs> what would make the perfect gift? What would, the, what, what would be perfect by way of a gift given? And I've got five Words here, quite long words, but we'll explain them as we go along. Liberality, singularity, priority, incongruity, maths, right, and efficacy. Let me just take you through Galatians, just pointing out something of these things from the text. What makes a perfect gift? First of all, liberality. The perfect gift will be liberal. To, 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 to give liberally is to give a vast quantity of real quality. Through God's gift, not only are our sins forgiven, but we are all, male and female, made sons of God who inherit everything our Father has to give. That in itself is astonishing. But in order for that to happen, God had to give something even more lavish, more significant, more long-lasting. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights as sons, what was necessary for us to be sons? That God gave his own son for us. In the Near East, a son is his father's everything. That's why that recent hymn, which I think we're going to sing in a moment, begins, what gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He's given everything in giving his son. And we've already read of Christ who gave himself for us. And Paul in this letter, as we've already said, speaks of uh, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now it's one thing to give stuff, but it's another thing to give yourself. Think about, uh, remember that, that passage in 1 Corinthians 13, 
And it speaks of giving all I possess to the poor, but without love. Well, hold on. How can I give everything to the poor, and yet somehow it's not loving? Well, the answer is because you've just given stuff, and you haven't given yourself. Yourself, you see. But God gives himself in the person of his son. He cannot give more. And he does so forever. The wounds of the Savior will be visible in heaven always as the mark of his self-giving. He has given himself permanently. Such liberality. Giving, as it were, my all is perfect grace. And yes, there was grace in the Old Testament. In various ways, God gave many things, but nothing like this. He gave creation, gave his law. But nothing, nothing, nothing compared with God giving himself in his son, especially at Calvary. And once you see that, you begin to grasp the outrage of the Apostle Paul. How dare you Judaizers be saying, this is not enough. You need to have the law. How dare you when God has given his very self? Perfect grace. First of all, liberality. Secondly, word singularity. Some of you are mathematicians here, you might know about singularities. But it means a one thing, doesn't it? It's singular. There's nothing else like it. It's unique. This gift that God has given is singular. There's nothing like it. Wasn't the law a gift and a blessing? Sadly not, says Paul. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. It was a gift, but it wasn't a blessing. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Though the law is good in itself, a curse falls on all who do not keep it fully. Everything. Human beings, as we saw this morning, are hopelessly flawed and rebellious sinners, lawbreakers. And the law can't cure us. It cannot cure us. It can point us in the right direction, but it can't cure us. So the law brings curse, not blessing. In fact, it's arguable that every good thing that God does in the Old Testament only goes to show more of our sin and how terrible it is. God saves Noah and his family through the flood. But their descendants build Babel against God. God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt and commits himself to them in his covenant law. Yet they turn to the golden calf. He brings them to the borders of the promised land. But they refuse to enter. 
He gives King David the kingship, rule over the whole land, wealth, influence. And he turns to Bathsheba. And every blessing, once you, it works out, oh, here we are again. Here we go again. Human sin. It's like that woman in the Gospels, you remember, with the issue of blood, who, well, the doctors meant well. She spent all her money on the doctors. The doctors meant to cure her. But Mark chapter 5 tells us it only made things worse. They were meaning well. And it's like that in the Old Testament. Good things given, and yet it just makes things worse. So in a sense, the gift of Christ is not as if there's been blessings all the way, and this is, this is the, the cherry on the cake when Christ comes. The gift of Christ is not a climactic blessing that completes a series of partial blessings. Rather, it's a singularity. It's absolutely unique. Because it is the reversal of the curse which undermines all the other blessings that God has given. It stands alone. There's nothing like this. How? Well, see Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Adam had sinned. We were cursed with sin. The law pointed out sin, but only brought a curse upon us for our rebellion. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is accomplished, this reversal of things, this unique gift of grace is accomplished in the most extraordinary manner. On the cross, Christ, the Son of God, took upon himself the curse, entering all the way into the disaster we deserved. And that curse was exhausted upon him at Calvary. And there at the heart of the cross, he catches hold of us. So that all those who through faith are in solidarity with him are taken all the way out from curse into God's blessing. These false teachers are trying to reimpose the law. Paul says that just brought a curse. What are you doing? We're out from the curse. We're under God's blessing to reintroduce the law as a necessary adjunct to the cross is to reintroduce that darkness, that condemnation. No, I am astonished that you're turning from the grace of God to something that is no gospel at all. This is a singular thing. It's liberal, it's liberality, it's singularity. My third word is priority. Priority. God's grace comes spontaneously. It comes freely by his love before everything else. 
the false teachers were concerned to link these Gentile converts back to Abraham. Yes, says Paul, but get the story of Abraham right. Grace came first. Look at chapter 3, verses 6 through to 9. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's quoting from Genesis there, isn't he? Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify, count righteous, the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have the faith, have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The promise, later in Galatians 3, we are told, was made 430 years before the law was given. And indeed, before Abraham himself was even circumcised. This promise was given right at the beginning. The promise foresaw that this blessing would come through Christ, Abraham's seed, his descendant, And the giving of this prior promise of grace is not set aside by the giving of the law. The Jews saw the giving of the law as the center of history, of everything. But that's wrong, says Paul. That's wrong. Sinai is not the center of everything. The center of everything is Christ. And if you want a mountain, Mount Calvary. And all the Old Testament looks forward to him. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. The law was set up to show the Jews and us Our need of Christ. Christ is the center of everything. It was meant to show us that by our actions, we cannot please God. In that sense, the law is a slavery. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's good to aspire to the law. Of course it is. But if we think in terms of actually gaining our salvation, it becomes a terrible condemnation and curse. And it's crucial to see, it's interesting to see, that Paul writes this to these previously pagan Galatians, and he says that adopting the law would be a regression, a going back to what they had had before, before they became Christians as pagans. That's what he says, isn't it? Um, Chapter 4, verse 9, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Now he's saying this to Galatians, who, who they weren't Jewish people, they were, they were pagan people. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? How does that work? Well, it works something like this. There is a sense in which we can see the Old Testament law as the ultimate form as a, of, as it were, natural religion. Let me explain what I mean. How does it work? How do all pagan religions work? 
It is, I do certain things, good deeds, rituals, sacrifices, which are meant to incentivize the gods to bless me. I do this and they will smile upon me and I'll get something from them. I earn blessing by my actions. You try hard, you observe certain festivals, you sacrifice certain things. That's how pagan religion works. Paul refers to this as the miserable principles of the world, chapter 4, verse 9. Now, Christ has come to redeem us from this, miser- this, this present evil age. And if you think the law can save you, you're going back to the very same pattern, which can never work and which is always slavery. And perhaps there's a Christian here tonight and somehow or other you've fallen back into thinking, I'm not a very good Christian, but if only I do this, if only I sacrifice that, if only, then God will, as if you're introducing something more of that into your life. You're going back, says Paul. You're going back, if only I pray more. God would love me more, or something like that. No, God's grace is prior to all our deserving. It is spontaneous and free. You are not a slave who has to earn his master's approval, but a son whom your father loves and will always love. His perfect grace is prior to everything else. Grace is not about earning. Galatians, I'm ast- what are you doing? I'm astonished. I'm astonished that you're going back to this stuff, having come into the grace of God. And of course, it's always easy to step back into things that are familiar to us, isn't it? I have a friend who uses the illustration he changed from a manual toothbrush <laughs> to an electric toothbrush. But it's so easy, isn't it, to use the electric one like the manual one. And you're not meant to do it like that at all. It's always easy to go back to this stuff, the basic principle. That's not who you are, Christian, Paul is saying. Liberality, singularity, priority, incongruity is my fourth word. Giving especially in the ancient world, was often quite strategic, almost political. You gave to people who were likely to give back to you, who were likely to give you a leg up. (laughs) That's who you gave to. But another measure of God's grace and its perfection is its wonderful incongruity. He gives to those that don't match, as it were. His unspeakable gift is to sinners. He's holy. We started the morning service. Holy, holy, holy. Moral purity, absolute. But this God gives to people completely unlike him. Sinners, unworthy, bankrupts. People with absolutely nothing to give him. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. 
There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In those pairs, in those words, verse 28, they always carry an air, a a kind of a, a nuance of worthiness or superiority. There was that element of superiority in both the law and the Roman world. Jews, the Jews thought, are better than the Greeks. Free men are better than the slaves. Women are less than the men. But God's gift of grace in Christ has no regard at all to the so-called worth of the recipient. And so it totally upsets all that. It's not bothered about worth on a human level. It bestows worth. You are all sons of God, whoever you are, through faith in Christ Jesus. And those of you who know Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, that's why Paul is so strident towards Peter at Antioch. He says, before certain men came from James... He used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, Paul shot him down. Because it's not in line with the gift. It's not doesn't match. It's not the same as God's way of dealing with us. So why are we dealing with each other like this? To go back to the law, re-establishment, all those, all those bits of superiority and worthiness, huh? inferiority. No, no, no. That's so unlike God. I'm astonished. I can't believe that you're putting these things back in place when God has been so generous. His perfect gift. Perfect because it goes to the absolute undeserving. Not to get something off other people. Not political, not strategic. But simply a gift. Lastly, efficacy. I hope we've got time to do this. Again, the measure of a gift may be seen in its ability to produce change. To affect a person or a situation for their good. And this is where we see that God's gift is not just a message about Jesus. It is that. But it includes power. It includes the spirit of Jesus. Who brings power. Remember what Paul says. Chapter 3 verse 2. I would just like to learn one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by observing the law, or by believing the gospel, believing what you heard. And actually, from there on in the epistle, there is a great emphasis on the Holy Spirit. From chapter 3, verse 2 onwards, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit 16 times in the letter. In fact, the promise to Abraham is more or less equated with 
the gift of the Spirit to us. Chapter 3, verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might be given to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we could receive the promise of the Spirit. Or chapter 4, verse 6, because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now actually, this changes everything. This changes everything. It lifts Christianity out of being a religion. You see, someone could say, at the end of Galatians, chapters 5 and 6, Paul gives his own list of do's and don'ts. Isn't that just going back to the miserable principles of the world? Isn't that just going back to the same Pattern, the same old religious routine, except with different demands? The answer is a resounding no. Why? First, because all your sins are forgiven. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But second, because we now have the Spirit... Almighty God himself is alongside us to keep in step with, to help us. Now we have the Spirit in us who changes not just our actions, but our hearts who grows his fruit within us. The acts of the sinful nature. Paul contrasts, doesn't he, with the fruit of the Spirit which grows from within, which makes us a new creation. When you come to Christ, it's not, just ta- it's not taking on just another set of rules. If you think that's Christianity, you've got it wrong. Coming to Christ is all your sins forgiven and God himself taking up residence in our hearts to change us efficiently. Here's the efficacy. It changes us. It makes us different well there is something of the perfection of God's grace this is what the gospel is about God's great gift liberality singularity nothing like it priority before everything else incongruity given to those who just don't fit with God Yet he gives, and this great change through the Spirit. This is Christian. This is Christianity. This is what it's about. This is God's perfect grace. This is who you and I really are, because we are still in the flesh. There will always be the drawback towards self-reliance back towards the old way of doing things. If I do this, it'll give me the smile of God as never before. It's not like that. It's about God living in us, our sins forgiven. Don't regress back from Christianity into the enslavement of merit religion. And when that happens, (laughs) may God give you... (laughs) the spiritual insight 
to turn to chapter 1, verse 6, and say to yourself, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. We're not going that way. We understand. We live under the grace of God.